This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Well, now to the most incredible organ we all possess, the brain. How does it develop from newborn to adult? Why do male and female brains grow differently? And what are warning signs for parents if a child isn't developing, well, normally? It's a pleasure to welcome back brain researcher, parenting coach and founder of X Factor Education, Nathan Wallace. Nathan, good morning to you. Good morning, Catherine. Good to hear your voice. Are you well? I am well, although you, I've just had my buttons pushed, so I'm going to I did hear that. that. <laughs> I was in full agreement with you. <laughs> Sometimes it's better out than in. That's right. Um, look, it's a big topic, but of course brain it's development huge. starts even earlier than birth. It underpins so much of your work and so much of your research. Why don't we mm-hmm. go back and look at some of the basics again? What is happening even before birth? Right, um, before birth the baby's already data gathering. You know, people tend to think that everything's set by your genes because you know, our parents grew up in a generation that learned all about genes. So people think, you know, if Albert Einstein or Aparananath is your birth father, then you're just pretty much set. But actually the human brain is a really unique organ and it's designed to interact with the environment um, to see what sort of brain you're going to need for the rest of your life. So overall, the research will say that about 50% on average of your outcomes are determined by genes, but 50% are about this brain's ability to adapt to the environment. And even in the womb, it's already starting to gather information on what sort of environment is it going into. You know, if mum's getting foot rubs and cups of teas brought to her and is, you know, um, having a good old time, she's releasing endorphins into her brain and so, into her whole body, into her bloodstream. So those endorphins are positive hormones and they basically flood the womb and they tell the baby, whoa, it's pretty bliss out there. You know, mum's having a good old time. I don't need to get ready for war. I can sort of um, get ready for those higher intellect things. Whereas if we go to an opposite example, the mum's living in a domestic violence relationship, even when there isn't actually violence present, just her worrying about perhaps violence is going to happen releases the stress hormone cortisol. And so the cortisol is again being washed over the baby, and the cortisol is telling the baby, oh, it's a pretty hostile environment out there. I better get start getting ready for survival mode rather than, you know, compassion and love mode. I mean, the, it's not the, what happens in the pregnancy doesn't dictate the baby's brain because it's data gathering in lots of ways over its whole life, but especially in the first thousand days, which is from conception right up to two and a half. So even in the womb, the baby's already interacting with that environment. And we, of course we know the effect of nutrition now. We're increasingly learning the effect of maternal nutrition um, yep. on things like predisposition to obesity um, and, of course, staying away from um, alcohol um, yeah, because of the, the fetal alcohol syndrome, which is a, you know, an injury to the brain, really. Yeah, it is. Okay, no so amount's a good amount, really. There still perpetuates these myths that... Because a lot of people might be able to drink some alcohol and there's no seeable impact on the child. But that still doesn't mean there's a safe amount. So I'd say stay away from it altogether. So the secret of all that is look after mum, pamper mum, um, support mum as much as possible, mm-hmm. uh, even before birth, so that there's yep. good vibes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Try and have stress-free pregnancy. It doesn't have to be stress-free. You don't want mums freaking out that, oh, no, I had a fight. Did that damage the baby? Um, it's what happens no. most of the time. Yeah, you know, for sure. The baby's quite resilient. Now, mm. even in those early days and, and hours, of course, there's just this explosion um, of, of cells, basically, isn't it? Yeah, there? it's incredible. Yeah. It's just you don't see it anywhere else in nature, the explosion that happens. So it's like the, basically the earlier it is, the more important it is. So... Um, that speaks lots to the pregnancy, but it means those first few days are incredible. We talk about the first thousand days up to two and a half, but midwives talk about the golden year, that first year. 
You know, because in the research, we can predict so many of your adult outcomes from the age of one. So what is happening to the brain during that first year? This is all about interactions in its new world. It's all yep. about interactions. But the it's actually shedding. Is it, is it not basically shedding at the rate of not s- sorting out information and um, making connections and, yep. and prioritising? There's an enormous right. sort of physiological event happening. It is. It's got to make connections. I often think about the metaphor that you've like, because the baby's got their own consciousness. They're born with a temperament. They're born with a, a consciousness. Um, but it's like you've arrived into a spaceship that you've got no idea how to fly the spaceship. And the spaceship is the human body. So you've got to learn how to use it. And it takes a couple of years. you know. And in that first year, like you said, that making connections, that's what they're really trying to do. But really that first year in many ways is actually about their feeling of safety. So in lots of ways, in the first year of life, the parent's job really is to make that child feel secure. So I think don't overcomplicate it. I say to parents that your job in the first year of life is to treat the baby like they're the centre of the universe and you are their slave. That's pretty much, you know, if you do that in that first year of life, that gives the baby all of that security and that responsiveness and that being in relationship. And that's really what sets a foundation for future success. And that's where that eye contact and talking to baby and interacting and yep. playing, just all of that stuff is just yep. absolute gold. It is, it's absolute gold. I mean, people get that idea of sort of needing maybe to do flashcards of the alphabet and stuff, and it's just that's really not the case at all. Baby Einstein. Yeah, yeah. I think because people essentially don't remember being before seven. And from the age of seven onwards, you're in this brain number four, the frontal cortex. So... You know, like in lots of ways, a seven-year-old is a little 25-year-old. But in the first seven years of life, you're in those three lower brains, so it's quite a different experience, and they've got quite different needs. Remind us what they are. Um, well, yeah, the bottom two brains, number one, survival, keeps you you know, alive, keeps your heart beating, and it's a home of fight, flight, or freeze. And then number two is movement. So if that's all you've got, survival and movement, then you're a reptile. That's called the reptilian brain. To get brain number three... Um, You have to be a mammal, so you can just think of it as the mammal brain, but that's your feeling brain. That's where your emotions come from. And then brain number four is this wonderful, sort of not just human, other mammals have it, but we've got the biggest one. This is the brain that does all of the things that you can do that the dog can't do. You know, reading and writing and controlling your emotions. And we kind of live in there as adults. So we have emotions, but we can regulate our emotions. We only act like spoiled children about 5% of the time. (laughs) But but (laughs) children act like that 95% of the time if they're two, because they can't regulate their emotions as well. They don't have that brain number four online yet. All right. Now, the movement one was an important one I've always learned mm-hmm. from you, which is right. that movement, rocking, um, and um, the movement opportunities for a young yep. infant are very important. And remind us why. Okay, there's a, we talk about rhythmic patterning with brain number two. I think when you refer to the rocking, you don't essentially actually have to rock a baby because if you were, um, that's just how we typically do it in our culture, but actually the baby would pick up a rhythmic pattern from the to and fro interaction between parent and child. It's just that that's much more abstract to tell parents, so it's easier just to indicate, you know, rocking your arms and you meet the needs of brain number two. If brain number one, say, to be calm, because the brain works from the bottom to the top, so if you want to get up to the wonderful brain number four, you've got to meet the needs of brains one, two, and three. Brain number one needs attachment. That's why I said about just indulging the baby and making them the centre of the universe. Um, And then brain number two, you could say, needs a rhythmic pattern. So, yep, we can put your parents might have, and my parents might have put a rhythmic pattern in us by rocking us repeatedly. 
um, that, that movement brain because it's a foundation for the rest of the brain and it's really coming online between 6 and 18 months. If you think about it, the baby's pretty much a blob in your arms at 6 months of age and then one year later that blob in your arms can now walk, crawl, run, climb, use fine finger movements. You know, all of these amazing motor skills come online in that one year period. So that's when that movement brain is really coming to flourish. I would say the important thing to remember there is freedom of movement. You know, because that brain, that body's been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years. It just needs freedom of movement to do it. Most of it's driven by genes. But if we trap the baby, we've got constantly got them in a jolly jumper, a walker, a safety sleeper, a high chair, a pram harness. If they're constantly trapped, that can inhibit that, you know... Um, I think of it like a rose flowering in the garden. You've got to let it bloom. If you tied the rose up, it would not bloom very well. Let's talk about quite a big chunk of years, but I'm, I've always been very interested also in your views on them, which is, say, three or four through to about seven. This right. is where creativity and play should dominate, and what is happening yes. in the brain that means that's the number one thing. This is probably the thing that frustrates me the most, Catherine, because it's so very, very clear in the literature. It's so very, very clear in the PISA scores, the international scores we use to measure educational outcomes for countries around literacy and numeracy, that the countries that score consistently at the top, Finland and other Scandinavian countries, they really meet the needs of this brain number three. There's none of that formalised teaching until the age of seven. So between the ages of like two and seven, they value free play, creativity. It's very clear in the research that resilience is built between two and seven. And it's very clear that the more free play there is and the less adult-directed play there is, the more resilience the children will garnish. You said about creativity. You know, being successful as an adult is not just about knowing the right answer. It's been able to produce answers, create answers, invent answers. That ability for the human brain to be creative doesn't just come from genes. It essentially comes online between the ages of two and seven. And if you sit the kid down at a desk and say, let's get you ready for school, you're kind of wrecking that creativity. I love the way you explain it also, even as a parent, when you are talking about, uh, I don't know, the stars in the sky or uh, how the moon got there, don't mm. get out an encyclopedia and give all the answers. Right, Ask yeah. the child, like, this is what I love. You, 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 you turn it around and we'll say to a child of that age, what yes. do you think's going on there? How do you think it, 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 uh, that they got there? That's right. And That's that, that is more important than them knowing some obscure scientific fact they can Google when they're 25. That's so true, because that's that heart of creativity and that, that um, what the literature calls dispositions, the child's you know, set of attitudes and beliefs that encourages them to come up with new ideas. You don't get that if you're in a very, what colour is this, what number is this. My grandson said to me recently when I said something about a colour being orange, and he said to me, there's no such thing as orange. That's just something that adults made up. There's just red, and then there's red with gold on it. But there's no such thing as orange. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a really unique perspective. Maybe orange is just red with gold on it. But I love kids coming up with that divergent way of thinking. That's to me, tells me that my grandson's intelligent, not his reading age at five. Let's talk about the school years. We might not get much further, actually, because okay. there's a couple of things we want to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. For a start, your view on the school starting age. I've got an emailer asking about this, and I think I know the yep. answer. We, we just get into formal education too early, don't we? We do. But that's changing, though. The New yep. Zealand's currently reviewing the curriculum. I've been involved in that, and I'm pretty confident that when the new curriculum comes out, that emphasis on formalised learning before seven will be gone. So how might it look for five-year-olds... If you can possibly leave your five-year-old at the early childhood centre, 95% of the time that's probably a good idea. Okay. 
Yeah, that's on the short and that's, answer. That's, gonna, that's <laughs> no. probably going to become possible soon. Is that what you say? Uh, that's possible now to leave your child there until, until six. Until six. Yeah, okay. because they um, because they and they operate under Tafariki, the early childhood curriculum, which is a social emotional curriculum. So it fits very well with that stuff I just said about resilience and. So that curriculum should run really until they're seven. And, and I think so, the new curriculum yep. will reflect that. Excellent. Okay, so this is the year one, two curriculum this parent is asking about, and you're saying that's yes. in the process of changing. That's right. So if you're right now starting, though, and that, that new curriculum isn't rolled out yet, and you might still have some schools trying to get your child ready to be seven at five and trying to put pressure to do literacy and numeracy, and you don't want that, that's why I say 95% of the time you're probably better off staying at the childcare centre until they're six, if that's possible. Another issue raised in the question is neuroscience and its contribution to understanding the individual differences, e.g. between boys and girls. Right, yeah. What um, typically do we see that um, the old sort of um, truism was always that girls tend to be developmentally ahead of boys at that age. Yep. What do we know? We do know that female brains seem to come online faster. They don't end up being more intelligent. You know, there's no statistical difference between the IQ of male and females, but certainly female brains come online earlier. Now, there's evolutionary, you know, theory about that. Is it because they were raising 10 kids and you need your whole brain for that? So, and you were having babies at, you know, 15, not at 35. So there might be evolutionary reasons why a female's brain comes online really quickly because she needs it for this complex task of raising children. Men say if they're out hunting and warring, the last thing you want is your whole brain online for doing that in terms of you don't want empathy and compassion if you're a soldier. Um, so it's probably, nature's probably got a, um, an advantage in leaving the male brain for as long as possible before it develops. So then they remain more effective warriors. That's pretty simplistic, but you know there is certainly differences between the growth rates of male and female brains, but it's, it's hard to talk about because we don't really just have a male and a female brain. That whole binary concept's really gone out the window. It's a spectrum of gender. You don't have a 100% female brain and I don't have a 100% male brain, which is not surprising really because neither both of us have one male and one female parent. So, you know, this, um, <laughs> And we could have gone either way quite early in that's conception right. too. That's <laughs> right. It's one chromosome yeah. we're talking, yeah. Exactly. And so there are things that overlap. There, there will be traditionally, say, say, competitiveness is seen as a male trait more. It could be that you are actually way more competitive than I am. You know, even though you're a female and I'm a male. It could be that I'm way down the nurturing end for a male. So What it does know. say is expect differences between your kid and the kid yes. next door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. and those differences may follow a predictable pattern or a yes. or a or a stereotyped pattern, or they may not. But That's they right. will there will be differences. But there is clear patterns. I mean, especially yep. if you combine it with birth order. If you've got a firstborn girl, Firstborns do things faster, girls do things faster. So a firstborn girl's probably at two and a bit saying, can I have a drink please, mummy? Um, and then she, at five she can write her name, knows how you know to count to 100. Um, and then your boy you have two years later, he's two and a bit, and he's not going, can I have a drink please, mummy? He's going, dink, dink, want dink. Because a boy's brain grows slower, he's not the firstborn, so it's slower still, so you'll see a huge difference. So I do think in general, be wary of boys who are not the firstborn, of putting them under too much pressure to develop too quickly. They're not supposed to show interest in literacy and numeracy until six and a half, seven and a half. In fact, if you want a real horror show, what's the range between the firstborn daughter maturing and right, the yeah. son further down? <laughs> well, she'll have a fully developed <laughs> adult brain, probably, if it's a firstborn girl, probably at 18. And then her brother, that is usually two years later, he'll have a fully developed brain at 32. <laughs> so that's 14 years after. So, so chill it out. It is worth knowing that. So be patient <laughs> and persevere. Don't hey, compare them. Exactly. Mm. Look... 
a couple of real quick fires questions if you could yep. my daughter is locked down in Melbourne having moved over with a three week old baby just before lockdown baby yes. now only sees her parents what effect is this going to have it's going to have a wonderful effect. That baby's blissed. Uh, yeah, this is the best time for them to have lockdown. The baby doesn't need anybody else at three weeks of age. They need their parents available. And they're in lockdown. They can't go to work. It's difficult to go to the supermarket. So this is actually a win for the baby. They've got their undevoted, uh, you know, their parents' undevoted attention. And one more, and it's a big topic that you might want to expand on later, although mm-hmm. I think there's a short answer given the age that's referred to. Okay. The effect of marijuana and its ability to cross the blood-brain barrier in adolescents and young adults. Can you comment? Yeah, because I have to know that for my job. But it's lots of complex science, but basically it's really bad for you before the age of 18. After the age of 18, there's no evidence that it does anything. So it very much is about the adolescent brain, not so much the young adult brain. So that means I don't care if my teenagers are experimenting with pot so much when they go to university because it's not going to have a lifetime effect on their brain. But at high school, that is really dangerous. We only got to midway through primary school with our. We'll, go, we'll pick up, but it's um, it's it's wonderful stuff. Always, it's good to go back and do the basics, Nathan. Yeah, um, there's so much. It's uh, just like a Trevor trove of information. There's just more all the time. It's wonderful. Thank you as always, Nathan Wallace, uh, brain researcher, parenting coach, and founder of X Factor Education.